This morning we're going to begin a new series, a six-week series from the book of 1 John. We've titled the series, First Love. It does have a double meaning and that is intended. We, we mean to first say, first love God. That's the first priority. And second, we need to choose to love others first and do it well. Over the last couple of months, we've discovered as a church that we have become maybe distracted. We've, we've lost focus and didn't truly maybe love and trust, I could say, God as we should have. We've wavered at times, as we all do, to love him first and allow him to truly lead us as he's desired us to. First John's a great book. Um, it's short, but it, ha- it is packed with a lot of great I don't want to say information, but I think content that helps us ask some serious questions. It has so many great teachings. I think it's going to encourage us. I think it's going to challenge us. It should. But I'll admit, 1 John is a difficult book to teach, as I find myself probably with more questions than answers in several places. But we'll be team teaching this, similar to what we did with the, book, uh, the story in the life of Joseph. Um, and so we'll have a variety of different voices, truly led by the Holy Spirit, to kind of hone in on particular passages from 1 John. You know the, time, the feeling the first time you tried something? It could be maybe that uh, food or an activity. Well, how'd it go? I know for the first time I tasted tomatoes. I hated them. I thought they were gross, the texture, everything. But now, after time, I eat them regularly and enjoy them. I think firsts are important. They, they usually mean that we made an attempt to do something that we had never done before. Some of the times it goes well and, you know, other times it's a first, so it doesn't go so well. Like my first piano recital. Yeah, some of you are going, Dave, piano, right. Yes, my mom made me play piano. I remember that day, I practiced all week for this recital, and I was going to play, get it of all, and and this is how traumatic this was in my life. The song, I remember the name of the song, Green Gravel. Green Gravel, what? Never seen it. Okay, I don't know what that is. But here's the beauty of it. It was a short song, but I got to play it in three different keys. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah talent right there. Well, let's just say I didn't want to play. I was waiting to play. I'm nervous. I'm sweating. And I wanted to find a way out of it. But let's just say I I didn't even get through the first key without making mistakes. And it truly just got worse the longer I played. It was horrible and embarrassing. You know, I remember those words my mom said to me that uh, if you quit playing the piano, you'll be sorry. Well, I can honestly say, I'm not sorry. (laughs) But those of you that have played piano and do play piano, it is a great gift and thank you so much as we uh, have a great one today. Another crazy thing was when I was asked to play third base last minute for the first time. I had never played third base. I had played baseball. But the team was short guys and I was a pretty good player. And I'm not trying to brag, but I mean, I was athletic. And, but I mostly played outfield and I was a pitcher. So I knew I could throw the ball to first without any trouble. 
but no problem early in the game, right? You know. But we get to the third inning, toward the end of it, and I was playing closer as, we, as there were guys on base. All I remember is the sound, thwack! The ball off the bat came at me so quickly that I couldn't even get my glove up in front of me in time, and I was struck directly in the mouth. Not in the nose, not in the chin, but right in the mouth. It, pushed, it knocked out a tooth and pushed others in. I picked up the tooth, and this is true. I picked up the tooth out of the not-so-green gravel and brought it to the hospital, and then they put it in milk and later to the oral surgeon that fixed me up along with 32 stitches in my mouth and a few outside. But I'll say I still have that tooth. It's right there in my mouth. That was not a great first. I don't like third base. The crazy part is, is I slow pitch softball, which is even closer than third base. And I didn't have a problem with that, so I don't get it. So this morning, we're, we're delving into 1 John. It's written by John the disciple, John the apostle. Who was he? He was, he was the son of Zebedee, a fisherman by trade, and a younger brother of James who was also a disciple, also known as, and, you know, talk about cool nicknames. They were the Sons of Thunder, okay? It's in Mark 1, so look it up. He was a fisherman, okay? But he was also one of Jesus' inner circle, together with his brother James and Peter. And he self-describes himself as this disciple whom Jesus loved in John 13. 1 John is not uh, the first writing from John, though. We need to know the gospel. He had already written the gospel of John. And it's not clear if 1 John or Revelation was written first. But most likely, at a minimum of 10 to 20 years separating the gospel of John, after John had written it, he writes 1 John. Did John think that the gospel of John wasn't enough? Well, let's realize that John is rather old at this time. He is writing this most likely 60 to 65 years after Jesus had been crucified. That's a lifetime. Some say he was most likely in his late 70s up into his mid-80s. He was a young disciple. Why would John write more? I mean, doesn't he already have all the accepted writings that are traveling around of Paul and Luke and Peter? They're available to the church. Why did he need to do more? So what were the conditions? Well, that's why we're going to see why he wrote it. We now have a Christian community that is in its second and third generations. Many Christians had been complacent, and habits had been formed in that complacency. There was also a storm of heresy. And there were kind of three forms going on, but ultimately it was beliefs contrary to the beliefs and teachings of the apostles. And they existed at this time, and they were growing. They were becoming more mature. It appears that the lives of Christians had lost its boldness and had become indifferent to these heresies among them and had fallen back in their ways of old. I like how Pastor Chuck Swindoll says that. He says, Complacency and indifference are enemies of of authentic Christianity. How true is that? 
Now that we know John's purpose, we understand there's this heresy, the second and third generation that's kind of lost their boldness. We're going to dig into the chapter a little bit. So as we look at the first chapter of 1 John and a couple verses into chapter 2, we will notice three main themes that John develops. He talks about fellowship multiple times. He talks about sin. And he talks about this idea of the atoning sacrifice, which is Jesus. Or another way they put it is propitiation. So I'm going to plan to kind of work verse by verse through this. And I have a few other passages of Scripture to help kind of clear, uh, make the picture even a little clearer, hopefully. So in 1 John 1, this is what it says. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. There's some strategic words in there. We're going to talk about those. But John begins the epistle similar to the beginning of his gospel. He uses the word beginning, which in the Greek simply means origin. In John 1... In the first five verses, he says this. He uses the same words. In the beginning, there's that word, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You will see the words that I had underlined that this is significant. It's interesting that John picks up these themes from his gospel and in turn uses them again in 1 John 1. Notice the words beginning, word, life, darkness, light. It's not by accident. Many scholars say this is very intentional by John, and I would agree. It is a way to bring the readers back to his gospel. This was a common teaching technique among Jewish rabbis. They may, they may not, this may not be a remez, but this is kind of how Jewish rabbis did it. it it's a, this remez word is this idea if it gives a hint of where they want you to go. But it's, it really does have the same effect that John is doing. It was a method, I think, that the rabbis were to do this, and they'd quote a verse or part of a verse in order to have their students of the word recall the verses before and after. For example, if I say to you, For God so loved that he... So that's the idea, is there's these similar words that are being used. And it was to bring back thoughts. And I think John is using the same technique to remind people of his gospel. You know, I find it interesting that in this, these are the same words that Christ uses on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you're like, those are some strange words if you just read it that way, not understanding that that was a remez to bring the religious leaders and Pharisees of the day back to this powerful passage in Psalm 22. 
And if you were to read Psalm 22 this week, you would go, oh, that's what he wants them to know. John in this section of Scripture is bringing his readers right back to his earlier gospel. Because what he wrote is profound and inspired by God. Then John shares why he has the authority to say the things that he says. He was present with Jesus. He was a first-hand witness to all that took place. When writing this, he is likely the only living disciple. But states that he is writing on behalf of all of them. But then he ends with the words, word of life. See, remember in John 1, in the beginning was the word. That's a big W, meaning Jesus, which is again that direct reference to him. 1 John 1, 2, as we walk through this, it says, and the life, which is a reference of the word of life and a reference again to Jesus, was manifested. Um, as you kind of think of the word manifested, it simply means to make known or visible or even another way to bring light to that what was already present. Okay? And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. There's that word life again which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So John wants to leave no doubt that he is talking about Jesus and that he is speaking with authority given to him by God. Verse 3, What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John uses a couple of words again that are important. He repeats the word proclaim, which he had used in verse 2, and now again in verse 3. This word has a great meaning. It's, it's to make known openly, or to declare it out loud. John seems to be connecting both the words manifested and proclaim with the idea that he wants Jesus, as well as what he writes, to be known to the world and to stay known. We also notice the very important word fellowship shows up. I think this word has a different meaning depending on who you talk to. But frequently, we use it at church. However, John, I think, is very specific because he sees how important true fellowship with God and then again with other believers is. The word used is the Greek word koinonia. Some of you have heard that word. With it, it brings this idea of being associated with. And even in between services, I was talking to an individual and they said, maybe it's like this common knowing. And I'm like, well, explain. And they said, you know how you go to a place and you find out that the person you're talking to is a Christian and all of a sudden there's this like instant connection with them? Like you know them? I'm like, yeah, that would fit. But it's this idea of being in community with, having communion with, not just at the Lord's table, but there's this idea of active participation together. There's a depth there. It's not simply grabbing a coffee and a donut in the fellowship hall. 
and talking about what happened this past week or the week ahead. Fellowship's about connecting with others on a spirit-enabled level. It could include deep talks on theology. It could be praying with one another. And generally, it's about caring and loving one another that are in the body of Christ. This is not fellowship that the world has access to because they are without the Spirit. Then in 1 John 1, 4, we, we, we're centered on Jesus Christ and there's true fellowship with believers. And then John shifts here and he says, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. It's an interesting word choice. He says, our joy. Is that just his and the apostles' joy, or does he imply our joy can be complete as well? Well, depending on your translation, it could also read to make your joy complete. And John actually refers to both of these, one of them in John 15, 11, and the other one in 2 John 12. But it is safe to say that true joy and fellowship are things that are unique to a Christian and to the body of Christ. Joy and fellowship fulfill us completely when we are led by the Spirit. So that's after the first section. And you'll see in your Bibles, typically it is a paragraph break. And now there's this new section in verse 5. And, but he continues to bring the word fellowship back. This is the message we have heard from him in verse 5 and announced to you that God is light. Notice what's coming in now from John. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You know, I think as you look at this passage, this little section, I kind of I, I think that sometimes we can miss the significance of light and darkness and fellowship. And I hope we don't just read over those. But they're packed with some great points. He contrasts what true fellowship is, reminding us that true fellowship, again, with God and other believers, is only found through Jesus Christ. But now John introduces another word picture. He uses the words light and darkness. He now describes God is light. Using this description would have the listener or reader go back to his gospel again where John has eight different passages that talk about God is light. In John chapter 1, John writes, and we, I read this earlier, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then a couple of verses later, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Have you ever tried to run, or even for that matter, walk in complete darkness or have a blindfold on? Well, I, I'm going to say I don't recommend it. To make it even more difficult, add a few uneven paths 
or some obstacles. I can't count the number of times I played night games and led night games with our youth, and, and it didn't take long before some would crash and burn. That was with some light, and they still struggled. But think about how different it is when there is adequate light. You run and walk without trouble, even on a path that's not even. Since God is light, that means he exposes what is in the darkness and makes it known and seen. When light is present, the only way to diminish it is by hiding it under something or shutting it off or extinguishing it. God is the eternal light, and there's nothing that can shut him off. Darkness loses every time. I appreciate that John reminds us that God is the all-powerful one and his light shines into every place he wants it to shine to expose what's in the darkness. And then we get into the next section that I call the Oreo. Verses 8 through 10. You have verse 8 and 10 that are the darkness and lies. In verse 9, it's the good stuff in the middle. Verse 8 begins with this. It says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. This idea of no sin was one of the heresies of the time. People are, are mostly good, right? What people had forgotten And what we often, and I know I do, forget is that only one sin in our entire life condemns us. Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. See, God's a holy God. He's perfect. Remember the prophet Isaiah's words when he was in the presence of God? And I'm just paraphrasing. He says, Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. He could not be in God's presence because he was a sinner. John wants us and the readers to remember that no matter how you slice it, the truth is the truth and it is not relevant or relative no matter what argument we make with ourselves or others. Sin condemns us. But here's the great news. It's the cream in the middle of the Oreo. When we acknowledge our sin, we get verse 9, one that, wow, I think a lot of us have memorized. It says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is an amazing scripture. Uh, There's so much here. But there's three main things that we'll see. One, We need to acknowledge our sin. I mean, Paul tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Two, God is the only one that is righteous and holy that can take away our sins. And third, we are cleansed from our sins, which gives us right standing with God through Jesus' perfect shed blood on the cross. Heresies and false teachings were clouding these very truths. I recently read a quote in Daily Bread about Corey Tenboom. 
She's a Holocaust survivor. And in her book, Tramp for the Lord, she's talking about the forgiveness of sins being cast into the sea and says this, when we confess our sins, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever, and then God places a sign out there that says, no fishing allowed. We then now see John return to his thoughts from verse 8. But he says, but now he says, if we say, there's that reference again, that we have not sinned, we make him, Jesus, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. Whoa. We make God a liar? I'm just going to say, that's not a good place to be. Normally we'd conclude with chapter 1, but as John continues his themes of fellowship and joy, sin and forgiveness, he addresses how we now gain access to the Father. And what is, how does that work? Because sin has entangled our flesh, we're in this constant battle. And so John's saying, confess your sin. He's the one that can take care of it. Well, why can he take care of it? John wants to make sure people understand this. He says, there's, and, and there's, I read this and I thought, this is great because it, it kind of says what I, I wanted to say, but I couldn't say it as well. It says, there is one doctrine that separates Christianity from all other world religions. And it is what Christianity declares about the forgiveness of sin. All other religions say you must do this to be saved. It's a works-orientated thing. Here, it's an acceptance of God's grace in receiving him. We were given a free gift, but we know it was not free for Jesus and the Father. It came at a huge cost to them. We don't have to work for our salvation. Praise the Lord. We have been shown grace and mercy. So in 1 John 2, 1, he starts with these words. My dear, and sometimes they use little, children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice. This is the idea of that other word, propitiation. Or as the ESV, or I just said that, as the ESV says, for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The sins of the whole world. That's a powerful sacrifice. But see, I really appreciate John's heart here. We see in verse 1 of chapter 2 this little opening reference to dear children. Pretty much anyone that was reading this was much younger than John. I think it, what is precious is the fact that he loves those he's writing to. He's writing to him as a father, as a grandfather, a great-grandfather. There is no hint that he's belittling them by calling them children. Just as a loving parent wants to warn their children to be safe and to make wise choices, John is wanting them to understand the dangers of sin, and it has to be dealt with. He also knows that they will fail and, and get distracted, just as I do. He wants them not to give up on their faith. 
but to know that they have a loving Father in heaven that can and will forgive them completely and restore their relationship with him. John uses the word advocate, which in the Greek means one who pleads another's cause before a judge. Think about that. Think about Jesus doing that before the Father on our behalf. One who pleads another's cause before a judge. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is it? The only one that's righteous, Jesus Christ. But it's not us doing the work. It's the Father and Jesus that have done the work of restoration. Romans 3.25 says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So when Jesus died, he took the sins of all the past that had been heaped up. He took what was present and what will be in the future. And then in Romans 5, 9, he says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, it wasn't our justification, it was his that made us just, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? When we're not justified, we have God's wrath that will come on us. We have punishment that will come on us. This is more of an eternal reference than it is a daily reference. So when John concludes, I am sure he also had Paul's words in mind as well as what he had been taught, what he had learned from Christ. And as he speaks these words, it's interesting that, it's, that it similarly lines up fairly well with John 3, even verses 16 and 17. He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice the acceptable gift. Jesus was the acceptable gift for our sins and not only for ours but also for the sins of the whole world. He's not leaving anybody out. All can come to him. So there's three things from this passage I just want thoughts for you to consider as you go forward this week. I want you to think about can I learn to love God each day more and more and with everything I have? You're going to have setbacks. You're going to have days you fail. Confess it like it says in verse 9 and get back up and begin to love him more and more. Learn to love him. Second, remember how sinful you were and be thankful for Christ's sacrifice. Don't forget what he did for you. The more we see the depth and seriousness, I believe, of our sin, the more we understand forgiveness and the significance of his love, his grace, and his mercy. And lastly, true fellowship with God and the church body, I believe, will bring you lasting and complete joy. Joy. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that you put in the mouth and heart of John, a faithful disciple, a faithful apostle. Lord, I, may, I pray that we would heed these words, not only as an encouragement of what you've done for us, 
but also as a challenge as we go forth. That we would realize that we are sinners, but we have been saved by you. And we have been restored to you. Thank you so much. We pray this in your gracious and heavenly name. Amen.